Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, a CME podcast series where each week we translate today's late-breaking clinical research and news into tomorrow's practice. I'm Dr. Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School and editor-in-chief of the 5-Minute Clinical Consult. Be sure to follow the link in the description after today's episode for more information about today's article and to claim CME credit. This podcast is brought to you by PrimeMed. Stella is a 44-year-old female who's here with residual pain from her recent herpes zoster infection. It's been weeks and the pain persists. She's very uncomfortable and feels she needs something stronger to deal with the pain. She's having trouble sleeping at night and discouraged. How can we help her? Hi, this is Frank Domino, and joining me is Dr. Jill Terrian, Associate Professor and Associate Dean of Interprofessional and Community Partnerships at the UMass Chan Medical School, Tan Chingfen Graduate School of Nursing. Hey, Jill. Good morning, Frank. Wow. You know, it's too bad. Stella's 44. The shingles vaccine might have been something that could have helped her. And now she needs something stronger for the, for the post-herpetic neuralgia. What do we know about treating pain, in particular treating pain with opioids? Well, what we know is that opioids have been in the front of many conversations and news stories, you know, for a few years. But we know they have a place in the treatment of pain, the treatment of acute pain, subacute pain, and chronic pain. And we know that non-opioid pharmacologic treatment can be just as effective in the treatment of pain. And the addition or use of non-pharmacologic therapies can enhance pain relief if you are using opioids. So what this is about today is, you know, in 2020, there were 92,000 drug overdose deaths and about 75% involved in opioid. Now, 10,000 of those deaths were attributed to a prescription opioid. So not the biggest part of the problem, still significant. And Many things have happened in the last, you know, five years. We had a guideline that came out in 2016 by the CDC, and it recommended opioid prescribing restrictions. And what they found happened is it led some providers to avoiding opioids altogether. And that, you know, might have taken a benefit away from some patients. So they have updated their guidelines. Uh, We're in, you know, 2022 with the new CDC guidelines. So let's talk about them. What's changed with the 2022 guidelines? Quite a few things have changed. First, I think in 2016, when the guidelines came out, everybody, you know, said, great, this is, we have a guideline to, you know, refer to, but it really focused on chronic pain. And this updated guideline addresses acute, subacute, and chronic pain treatment, as well as the strategies to mitigate risk and also tapering of opioids for those patients that are on a chronic therapy. And the updates specifically address uh, a total of like 12 evidence-based recommendations. And, you know, breaking them down, one is whether or not to initiate opioids for pain. Those are the first two. The next grouping is selection of opioids and determining of opioid dosages. And that's three of the guidelines, three of the points. And then deciding the duration of an initial opioid prescription and conducting follow-up. And the last area looks at assessing risk and addressing potential harms of opioid use. So basically, it continues on with a lot of the principles providers already use. Maximizing non-pharmacologic therapies and non-opioid treatment considerations, and really engaging the patient in the collaborative treatment and the goals of care. 
If you have an opioid-naive patient, reminds us, lowest dose, shortest duration. And looking at their pain treatment history and, you know, have they used opioids in the past? And what are the harms if I'm going to prescribe an opioid? And what is the benefit going to come from the pain treatment? And again, weighing that with the non-pharmacologic options. And, you know, looking at their med history, avoiding adverse events, you know, you never want to have opioids and benzos prescribed together. Yes, it happens. And if it's done in a controlled way and everybody's on the same page, if you're not the one prescribing the benzodiazepines and they have another provider, it could be, you know, talking with them and, you know, making sure that the patient understands the risk and you can obviously prescribe Narcan so that they have it on hand. And then you always want to look at a substance use history. And there's several, you know, screeners available. It's as simple as asking, have you taken an unprescribed medication in the last year? And that leads you to, you know, if they say yes, you would investigate more and so on. But what I want to say about this guideline is that it's not intended to manage patients with cancer-related pain, diseases such as sickle cell anemia, palliative or end-of-life care. It's really meant for primary care and outpatient treatment of pain. Jill, so many good things you said there, and I really appreciate your comments about um, communicating with other providers, prescribing Narcan uh, for patients who are going to be on a chronic opiate, and reminding us all that uh, we know that patients with cancer-related pain and, and conditions like sickle cell sometimes get discriminated against, like, oh, I don't want to give an opioid. So uh, thanks for covering that so quickly. What, what, what should we do today for Stella? Stella has a, a common problem. And unfortunately, there's a small, not a small percentage, there's a good amount of patients that have post-herpetic neuralgia pain that can last six months, 12 months, or even beyond that. And so it's real. And so we want to know what's her history of symptoms and what, what has she been using for treatment? Uh, empathize because this can be extremely painful and debilitating. So you want to know what she's doing and how it's affecting her. She's already mentioned that it, her sleep is disrupted, which we all know is never good. So you have to have that discussion, you know, a pain scale, how much is her pain on a scale of 10, if that's what you use. I know people are using different things now. Is an opioid appropriate? It could be. So do the benefits of taking an opioid outweigh the risks for this patient? But we do know if you look up guidelines on, you know, treating post-herpetic neuralgia pain, we have a lot of, a lot to offer her, you know, in the forms of pharmacology. It could be tricyclic antidepressants, gabapentin, pregabalin. And again, we do mention opioids, but again, short acting and a short course with evaluation. It might just, you might give her three days and then have her call and tell you how it's going and, and go from there. She mentioned sleep. Amitriptyline could be something that, you know, you could use. It would cover, you know, sleep as well as a decrease in her pain. Nortriptyline. And then, of course, we have topical lidocaine. So, you know, really it's going to be, you know, an individualized patient-centered approach with Stella to see where you can get her to. And you certainly want to get her comfortable. Multimodal, yes. And multimodal. Yeah, multimodal and being a really good historian as well as really engaged in patient-centered decision-making. Wow, big topic. Thanks for covering it so well, Jill. Thank you, Frank. And, you know, I just want to say, you know, I think that as providers, sometimes these guidelines, you say, geez, what's going on here? You know, I know how to do that. But this guideline's really meant to say, 
it's flexible, it's individualized, and it's centered on the patient for safe, you know, safe prescribing, always. Practice pointer, the use of opioids in the treatment of pain remains an important option, and these guidelines assist providers in their use. Patients deserve compassionate, safe, and effective pain management. Safe prescribing doesn't mean no prescribing. Join us next time when we talk about the diagnosis and management of postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by PrimeMed. To claim CME credit and receive additional information about the article referenced in today's episode, follow the link in the description. To stay up to date on the most recent clinical research and news, please subscribe to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine and be sure to check out primed.com for additional CME content.